This is a recording of the All-Pilot Conference Call conducted on October 6, 2020 at 5 p.m. Central. Participants include Captain Nicholas James, MEC Chairman, Captain David Zergot, MEC Vice Chairman, and First Officer Jade Shiwi, MEC Secretary and Treasurer. Due to technical difficulties throughout the call, you will hear audio imperfections. We apologize for these. Please enjoy. And good evening, everyone. It is 5 o'clock Central, 6 o'clock Eastern. Welcome to this fourth edition this year of the Endeavor MEC All-Pilot Conference Call. My name is uh, Nicholas James, and I'm the MEC Chairman. I'm joined in here in the office by uh, the two other officers, and I'm going to give them a couple of minutes to uh, introduce themselves, Dave and Jade. Hi, uh, Dave Zergot, uh, MEC Vice Chairman. I'm a Detroit 900 Captain. Jade Shiwi. Uh, MEC Secretary Treasurer, FTI, dual fall 200-900. Excellent. Thanks, guys. And uh, actually joining us in the back of the room is uh, several members of our communications committee, including our communications chairman, uh, Rob Berger. Uh, we also have Peter Ruhlman, Michael McCracken, and David Takahashi. They have joined us because this will be our um, final um, all-pilot conference call of this year, but moving into next year, we're going to look to take our all-pilot conference calls live. Uh, kind of around the same format as the town halls that you've seen at Endeavor and Delta, the difference is we are still going to be taking live questions on those calls. So we're testing some uh, audio and video equipment uh, on this call as we keep our normal format, and we look to make that transition uh, to a live format with video uh, streaming on the web on uh, our first all-pilot conference call of next year. Um, so this call is streaming live out on the web. We suggest that that is the best way to join because the phone slots are usually limited. You can go to alpha.org edv to join on the web. And if you have a question, please email it into edvofficers at alpa.org. That's edvofficers at alpa.org. So that gets us through uh, the introductions. Um, we've got uh, the agenda for this evening. Uh, we're going to go through a progression for all expansion briefing, kind of talk to you and answer some uh, probably commonly asked questions thus far on this kind of expansion program that we've uh, inst instituted in the PFA campaign. Then uh, Captain Zergot's going to talk to you a little bit about the CRJ 200 and, and kind of what we know as far as the expected fleet plans and, and whatnot for the end of the summer in 2021. And then we'll spend the vast majority of our time in question and answer mode. Again, we will be taking live callers. We'll start first with uh, the email questions, but then we will uh, open up the phone lines to hear from you. Um, so that's all I have. Dave, Jay, do you guys have anything else? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, let's get started with this progression for all expansion. So to kind of talk to the pilot group and, and bring you guys up to speed on you know, the methodology and the reasons behind this, we kind of have to go back to the origins. So the Progression for All campaign, the idea of it, I should say, of Progression for All, kind of really began after the, or during the bankruptcy of 2012. Uh, back at that time, um, we gave up around $138 million worth of concessions. There were about six to seven DCI carriers in the uh, network at that point in time. And, you know, of course, career progression was something that we were advocating strongly for in return for those concessions. Now, we were able to secure career progression in the form of contractual progression, which was the streamlined selection process. However, we were unfortunately uh, not able to achieve the guaranteed model uh, inside those bankruptcy negotiations. We just really didn't have the leverage to be able to pull that off at that time. But the idea for career progression really started at that point. 
Um, but moving past bankruptcy, we knew that we were going to have uh, several areas of the contract, very important areas of the contract, to try to fix. And so what we did was we adopted a strategy um, that was that has proven to be very, very successful for the pilots of Endeavor Air. And that strategy was, let's do the deal that makes sense. Let's solve mutual problems and unlock mutual benefits. Understanding that those first, especially those first early deals as we established this pattern, um, they weren't what we were looking for and they certainly weren't solving the, the higher level problems that we were hoping to solve, but we needed to establish that good pattern before we were going to be able to make progress in some of our larger initiatives. And so we started a, a process of doing letters of agreement. And that's why we have 119 letters of agreement uh, to our name since the inception of the JCBA in 2011. Um, during that time, career progression always remained our top priority and our number one goal because of everything it represents. But we understood that it wasn't available at that point in time. And so we wanted to use things, um, that we wanted to capture things that were available to the pilot group that were going to have a meaningful impact to the near and midterm um, outlooks during your jobs here at Endeavor. So let's fast forward a little bit to LOA 91. Um, LOA 91 was really a turning point. And, and why was it a turning point in terms of career progression? Well, it was a turning point because up until that point, um, we had obviously used career progression strategically to our advantage inside negotiations to unlock additional value, even though it wasn't there. But we also knew that if we had achieved career progression prior to getting some of our other strategic objectives accomplished, such as pay rates, retirement, work rules, so on and so forth, uh, career progression actually could have been a little bit of a detriment. When we talked to the pilots, excuse me, the MEC at Piedmont, PSA, and Envoy, they kind of faced a, a different problem. They actually felt like they were hamstrung by having guaranteed and contractual career progression because what that, what that flow model was doing for those properties was it was bringing pilots in the door and it was keeping attrition low. So there really wasn't a need to solve some of the other problems on the other side of the coin for those properties. So we knew that we needed to solve some of those problems or it would be best to solve those problems prior to re, uh, achieving career progression. Well, in LOA 91, we solved a myriad of our issues. And in fact, if you wanna take a look at the two tra most transformative LOAs um, at this carrier, it has been LOA 71 and LOA 91. If you remember, LOA 91 was the letter of agreement in which we took a temporary retention program and we moved it into a permanent rate. And when we moved it into that permanent rate, we ended up going 25% ahead of the industry on the captain scale and 45% ahead on the FO scale. And that is really unprecedented. Um, usually when you lead the industry, you lead it by low single digits, three, four, 5% at most. To get those type of double digit gains um, is, is like I said, is really, really unheard of. Um, but what, what LOA 91 did beyond that was it secured retirement, per diem, vacation, sick, long call reserve, and so much more. It also restored, and this was a very important part, it also restored senior pilot wages and retirement benefits. We knew that if we captured career progression prior to doing that, the senior pilots who gave up the most and recovered the least throughout those years um, probably would never get back to where they were. And so we were certainly sensitive to that and we wanted to make sure that we accomplished that objective and LOA 91 gave us that platform to do it. 
So then we move on past LOA 91, which was end of 2017, implemented at the beginning of 2018, and we felt really good about where our JCBA was. It was very, very secure. We had extended and expanded the fleet guarantee from 81 CRJ um, 900s through 2020, all the way to 109 dual-class aircraft through 2026. Again, we had the best rates, retirement, and work rules in the industry. So now was a time to really look at what we wanted to do with the career progression plan. Again, we used it strategically inside negotiations to leverage additional benefits, but now it was time to take a more external and almost a, a separate approach with career progression to see if we could unlock um, that commodity. So the MEC directed the negotiating committee um, in the beginning of 2018 when I was the chairman to create a career progression plan. And it was, it was presented at the 2018 May MEC meeting and it was unanimously approved by the MEC at that time. And that plan had a name and it was called the Career Advancement Plan. It was called the CAP. And I want to talk to you guys a little bit, not necessarily specifics about the CAP because we've talked about that before, but our approach, because I think our approach is, is very critical in, in understanding um, why we have reached this point in the Regression for All campaign. So obviously we knew what problem we were trying to address on our side. We wanted guaranteed and contractual career progression because it represents the best pay rates, the best retirement, the best work rules, and the best job stability in the industry. So it was really clear why we wanted it and what problem we were trying to solve for. But what we also had to do is think about how, how would implementing a career progression program, how does that affect Delta? What kind of drawbacks or negatives does Delta see? And we have to address that and preemptively address that through any type of program that we implement. Um, we can't be naive, blind, or obtuse to their concerns. So the first thing that we looked at is quality control, because what they're going to view any type of guaranteed and contractual career progression plan is an attack on their quality control through their process. And so the career advancement plan, we thought, really addressed uh, the vast majority of those quality control issues. Basically, we said, tell us what it takes to be a Delta pilot, because we know um, that you know what that really means. And there is an objective-based scale when you go down for your interview that this is based on. And so let's kind of explode that out a little bit, make it a little bit more transparent, and let's find out what kind of activities and what kind of points you need to score in different criteria. Those criteria could be um, professional development, service at Endeavor, volunteerism, education, so on and so forth. And let's get enough points in each of those buckets so that you have met that threshold of what it means to be a Delta pilot. Um, that was our approach there. And I have to say that from the time that we pitched that program here at Endeavor, through all of our conversations with uh, Delta management, we met with them about six times throughout the 2018 period. Uh, probably the last about eight or nine months of the year. And that included meeting um, two times with Jim Graham, who was the um, VP of Flight Operations at that time and now is going to be, in fact, I think as of today, guys, I think he's our new CEO. So um, Jim Graham was involved, Patrick Burns and Beth Poole uh, have all been involved in those discussions. Um, unfortunately, we didn't meet our goal. Towards the end of 2018, I met one-on-one -on -one with Patrick Burns and Patrick said, you know, we're, we're just not quite there yet, but we would like to offer an additional point on our undefined scale to pilots um, that had previously not been successful in the SSP. 
So we tried to do, um, we accepted that offer because we don't want to stand in the way of any pilot getting to Delta or getting to that platform. But certainly that didn't meet our end state goal. And I, I said I said to Patrick, I really appreciate the offer and it's, it's very nice, but you know that this doesn't meet our objectives and we're going to have to look at what the next steps were. Well, and he, and he understood that completely. I mean, this is just a business decision on, on both of our respective parts. So we knew that um, once the internal process didn't produce the uh, required results, now we have to move to an external process. And we knew that that was always going to be the evolution of the campaign. So the external process really started in September of 2019 with the Progression for All campaign launch. And I would like to thank uh, personally the previous administration including Captain Jim Johnson, Captain Mike Wolcott, and Captain Brian Campbell for doing an excellent job starting the campaign. Uh, we really appreciate uh, all their work that they did on that. Um, from a strategic point of view, um, like I said, the decision to move from an internal push to an external push is really just the natural evolution of our strategic plan. And to the pilots, this kind of seemed like a first step, but keep in mind that this program wasn't launched until 2019 and we've been advocating for career progression since 2012. We look at this as a marathon, not a sprint. This just happens to be the first step uh, publicly that you guys have, have really witnessed. So shortly after taking over the reins of the MEC chairman role, um, I met with Endeavor Management actually two days after on December 3rd, 2019. And I wanted to kind of describe in a little bit more detail uh, what the campaign was about and, and what the message truly was that we were trying to send. And that message was that the problem that we're trying to solve is not unique to Endeavor and Delta. It is felt by the non-holy owns on the American side and both the holy and non-holy owns on the United side. This is a more of a, a fee for departure issue than, than anything else. And so we really wanted to try to emphasize that we're not singling Delta out, um, but they are our wholly owned. I mean, we, we are owned by Delta, and so when we bargain and we negotiate, we're going to be negotiating with them. I also had to remind the, uh, you know, the executive team and, and the Delta executives as, as well, because uh, there was some consternation over the launch. I mean, obviously, whether it's our MEC or the Delta MEC, you know, sometimes they do get a little sensitive about you know, public displays like this. But I just, I tried to remind Delta that, hey, you know, we came to you guys first. You know, we tried to solve this behind the scenes. We've been trying to solve this for seven years. We provided you the right of first refusal and, and you refused and that was fine because it made sense for your business, but it also makes sense for our business to go in this direction. I also said to the company executives here, you know, that had a little concern about uh, the campaign being launched. I, you know, I said, hey, if this is not the right strategy, then tell us what the right strategy is. Um, obviously, we know in the past you've advocated for um, let them know who you are, let them see the kind of performance you deliver, let's let them see the kind of customer service you deliver. Um, we've done that for several years, and we have delivered top-tier performance here at Endeavor on several different metrics, including um, on more than one occasion beating Delta in those performance metrics. And that's something I think that we should all be very, very proud of that also organically lifts the rest of the DCI network, forcing them to chase us. And that unlocks untold value for Delta. And I said, so we've already done that. And so if this progression for all campaign isn't the answer, I'm all ears to what the answer is, but we have to do something different. We, and you guys know the phraseology, you can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. I said, so this is just the next step. 
And if it's not the right step, you know, we'll figure, we'll figure out that, that out in time. So shortly after I had some of those meetings with, um, Pat, excuse me, with our executives and actually with uh, Bill Lynch, said I got an opportunity to sit down with Patrick Burns one more time before the holiday break. And Patrick was very interested on enhancing the DGI, which I'm sure most of you remember at the early outset of 2020 before COVID changed everything, before Rona hit. And at that meeting, I said to Patrick, it's great, but DGI is not contractual. We don't have any control of the program. Obviously, this doesn't meet our needs. And he said, I know. I, I know it doesn't. And I know that there's more work that needs to be done. This is just the next step for us. And let's stay in touch. And what ended up happening was come about March, actually just before coronavirus hit, we were actually in the midst of securing a meeting with John Lauder, who is the new senior VP of flight ops down in, in Delta, um, to fly down to Atlanta to actually receive a career progression plan, not to have a discussion or a talk, but to receive a career progression plan that sounded to us like the career advancement plan that we had been advocating for. In other words, an objective-based guaranteed pathway with no subjectivity. Of course, in turn, they were going to be taking a look at uh, some efficiency gains out of the contract, and they were also having a difficult time hiring. So I'm not sure if they were going to look at possibly wanting to increase the new hire bonus, but there was going to be some contractual latitude that they were seeking, and we were interested to see what that proposal was. We don't know what it was, and we don't know what they were seeking, but we were certainly interested to see what it was, and we were excited to, to finally, it looked like we were finally going to break through on the career progression model. But as I said, COVID-19 hit, and the industry came to a grinding halt. And so our meeting with Delta um, was canceled as every airline went into uh, reconstructive mode as they tried to work feverishly to reinvent how you operate in this environment. And with the forecasts of possible near-term furloughs and a several-year recovery, um, it really didn't make sense that we were going to keep that meeting. And of course, um, Delta did go ahead and cancel it. So once we uh, at the MEC level started to get ahead of COVID, because I think this you know, took everyone a bit by surprise and took over the industry rapidly, and once we started to kind of reinvent how we were doing business here, we met in the summer with the team and we said, what are the next steps in the campaign? Because right now it doesn't look like we're going to move forward on career progression anytime in the near future. So do we take the campaign down? Do we change the campaign? Do we expand the campaign? What is, what is in our strategic plan and, and what should we do? So we also wanted to look at what was happening in the macro environment too with you know, the impending furloughs, with TSA and Compass shutting down in the early part of the pandemic, with ExpressJet shutting down in the later part of the pandemic. And so how do we want to approach this? And it was determined by you know, the leadership and the MEC that what we should do is we should move forward and actually even accelerate the progression for all plan into what you have heard from us last week, which is advancing ALPA pilots. Now, I want to express something on that topic. This is where this campaign was always going to go. Even though it started off as a call to Delta for Endeavor pilots to have guaranteed and contractual career progression, it was always going to be expanded out. And, and what I mean by that is, again, the challenges we face at Endeavor are not unique, okay? They're felt by all the non-wholly owns or, uh, excuse me, 
all carriers that fail to have guaranteed and contractual career progression. So our thought was, let's create a program that we know works, a blueprint of success, let's wrap that up, and let's bring it to other the, the other fee-for-departure carriers within the network. This was always going to be the next phase of the campaign. We just felt like it was going to happen after we got career progression. And COVID, like I said, uh, put the kibosh on those plans. So we thought by expanding the campaign's message now prior to achieving our goal was the right thing to do given the fact that we have, again, three carriers that have shut down and we have pilots on the street. The other reasons that we thought that it was necessary to continue the campaign is because the challenges that we face today are still the same challenges that we have faced pre-COVID and the same challenges that we will face post-COVID. Remember, one of the things that we're trying to solve with this guaranteed contractual progression model is our lack of fleet guarantee. 40% of our fleet, including all the CRJ200s, and Dave, I know you'll touch on that here in just a little bit, um, they're not under any fleet guarantee, and that represents probably close to 1,000 pilot jobs that can be shifted to a competitor like SkyWest or Republic with absolutely no recourse from your MEC. And that is, you know, that's problematic for us. Or they could be shifted to a startup. Um, that hasn't changed in a COVID environment. Does career progression completely solve that? No, it is a first step into a larger, more global goal of bringing all the flying in-house to mainline. But obviously, that could take several cycles, several Section 6 negotiations, and those negotiations have to occur at the mainline level. We're not going to have the ability to do that. So while, while we have that kind of long-term goal, let's create a mechanism now that protects Alpha pilots and, and protects those jobs. The other reason that we you know, launched the campaign to begin with and wanted to continue the campaign are programs like DGI and Propel. Now, I have to pause here because I really, really want you guys to, to hear this. We have no problems at all with pilots that participate in these programs. They're good programs, and they're going to get pilots to the mainline level. We have never stood in the way of that. Even when we haven't achieved our guaranteed and contractual goal, we still haven't stood in the way of incremental improvements, and, and we won't with these. Um, so if you participate in those programs, that's not a problem. What we take a little umbrage with is the fact that these programs exist, and they exist outside of collective bargaining. Because collective bargaining is how we bring value to the pilots. This is why you have an industry-leading contract. This is why we have 119 LOAs. Because we get to the bargaining table and we unlock your, excuse me, we secure your strategic objectives and unlock benefits for this pilot group. And when we don't, when we're not given that opportunity, it really, really hampers value for us and for you. So that's why it's uh, very important that we understand that the campaign needs to, to move forward and continue on because the challenges that we face aren't changing. So sometimes I get questions about, yes, but why is career progression so important? You know, there's so many other things that you guys can work on. Why are we so focused on career progression? Well, it's because of what career progression represents. It represents the highest pay rates, the best retirement, top tier work rules, and better job security. So when I ask pilots what they want to see here at Endeavor, those are the things that they say. They say they want more money. They want more per diem. They want trip duty rigs. They want to get paid on marketing times. They want uh, better short-stay hotel language, a myriad of things. And I always say, I can get all of those things for you and more, and in levels that are not achievable in the fee-for-departure network or to regional carrier if we can get a guaranteed and contractual model. So I think that that's something that we really need to keep in perspective. 
Now, while we are advocating for a career progression model, we have not changed our collective bargaining process or our goals here at Endeavor within the MEC at all. It is still business as usual. Remember I said that we, um, we started this kind of separate push for career progression at the conclusion of LOA 91 at the beginning of 2018, and we're at a, uh, LOA 119, and what is that, guys, almost 30, 30 LOAs? Yeah, close to 30 LOAs. Close to 30 LOAs in about two and a half years. So when we talk about why aren't we unlocking other strategic objectives or why aren't we trying to you know, unlock value for the pilots here at Endeavor, we are still doing that, and we're still looking for opportunities to do that. Um, I sat down with Joe Miller for a one-on-one -on -one conversation about you know, potential bargaining options and opportunities come this November. Uh, we're a little busy in October, but there are some things on the radar that you know, maybe we can put a small package together and, and get some good things for, for both management and for us. So we're still doing that. We're, you know, we're not holding out for career progression. The only time that a deal has ever failed as a result of lack of career progression is when the company wanted to involuntarily cut your pay by 27%. So that was the only time that we said, you know, if we're going to go to that level, um, we have to find some type of value in that. And the only value that really makes sense for those kinds of cuts is going to be um, guaranteed a contractual career progression because those cuts represent more cuts than we experienced in bankruptcy. And again, in bankruptcy, we had what? We had career progression. Again, not uh, guaranteed, but certainly contractual. So that was, you know, that was obviously very important. Um, so this is why we decided to keep the same color lanyard. And by the way, um, there's been some questions about why orange. I just kind of want to address that right now. Orange was the color um, of the Delta campaign prior to the yellow color. And we thought, you know what? It, it worked for tentative agreement number two. It was really well received by the pilots. Let's follow suit with them. And I've actually even had some conversations with Ryan Schnitzler, and I've, who's the Delta MEC chairman, and I've said, hey, if you guys launch a new campaign, can you go back to orange? Because you, know, you can put whatever slogan you want that works for your message, but a sea of orange between Delta and Endeavor, I think will send a great message to our respective carriers and to the association at a whole. And he loved the idea, absolutely loved it. But it's the same color, it's the same lanyard. We've just expanded the message. And again, this is where this was always going to go. Kind of in closing, the challenges that we face um, with fleet guarantees and you know, Propel-style programs that circumvent collective bargaining, they're not going anywhere. So our campaign shouldn't go anywhere. Career progression absolutely represents the best of all the benefits that we could ever hope to achieve. We're going to continue to unlock benefits for you here at Endeavor while we still advocate for that career progression model. Um, and I also like to highlight that even though we haven't been necessarily advancing a lot advancing our strategic objectives at the, the negotiating table because opportunities have been thin. We also haven't taken uh, a single pay cut, involuntary pay cut, and we haven't taken uh, or lost a single job. So I think that you know, sometimes preservation of benefits is something that is very, very valuable. And that certainly has not been seen by a lot of carriers within the Alpa network. So just remember this campaign is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And there's a lot of value, both in trying to obtain career progression and other benefits by remaining unified towards the Progression for All campaign. So thank you for listening to that. Uh, I think I'm done with my brief, and I'm going to turn it over to Captain Zergat for a brief on the CRJ 200. 
Thanks, Nick. Before I get into the CRJ 200, those of you that have questions, please uh, continue to email them into edvofficers at alpa.org uh, so we can get to them when I'm done with my briefing. And then we'll also take some callers from the line. But I, I know there's a lot of you listening on the live stream online. Uh, so um, if you have any questions, again, send it into edvofficers at alpa.org and we'll get to that. Um, moving on to the, um, to the news that I'm sure you saw, I think it was last week uh, from Joe Miller and a few days prior to that uh, was, um, was uh, the uh, announcement of the retiring of the CRJ-200 fleet uh, starting next summer and um, being finished in 2023. Um, that's not that's not news that you know obviously we welcome but it's also news we've heard before uh coming from the that fleet specifically uh we've heard them parking the crj 200s in the past only to come back and uh there's been several um analysts that have come out here since this announcement that aren't completely convinced that the crj 200 will be going away uh the same as the 717 and also the 767 uh that they announced also and that's mainly due to the um the demand recovery that they're that they're forecasting during the period of time that they're supposedly going to be parking all of those fleets respectively. Um, so we haven't heard about a replacement aircraft for those aircraft uh, when they do leave the fleet. Uh, but Joe did mention in, in his update that they plan to start uh, parking them uh, in late summer of 2021 when they hit their heavy maintenance checks and then be completed for parking by 2023. Um, but like I said, we just, um, there's not a lot of analysts out there convinced that that's actually going to happen, especially if demand recovers the way they think it's going to recover. Um, we have taken on um, two extra CRJ 900s uh, from the factory that came in last week, and um, and those uh, those are entering service. Um, also, uh, we, and I think Nick mentioned that, you know, he spoke with Joe Miller earlier. We had our monthly ops meeting that we have with the company, several members from the company, and uh, they briefed us on departures going forward in um, November and December. Our departures are ticking up a little bit. Um, in uh, November, due to the holidays, we're uh, forecasting peak daily departures to be around 800, which is around 80 to 85% of where we were uh, prior to COVID. Uh, and also, but block hours are down due to shorter flights and holes in the, um, and holes in the uh, schedule. Um, so uh, pairings will still be uh, pretty inefficient. Uh, but... Um, it, things are starting to trend in the right direction when it comes to um, our departures uh, from a manpower planning standpoint. And that's about all I have, Nick. All right. Jade, anything for you, from you? I'm good. <laughs> well, that's all right, because we've, uh, we've been going for about uh, 34 minutes, so obviously we want to spend the bulk of our time in uh, question and answer mode. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to start off um, with... Uh, Let's see here. Actually, let me ask the team here real quick. Do we have any additional, how many additional email questions do we have, comms, besides the three that we started with? We have three additional ones? Just, just, three. just three. Okay, just three. Okay, so everybody stand by. I'm actually, with just this few email questions, I'm actually going to put the conference in uh, question and answer mode. So everyone just stand by for one moment, please.
Prince is now in question and answer mode. So if you have a question, please press one and then zero to get yourself into the queue. We're gonna answer a couple of email questions first. We'll let you guys get into the queue and then we'll uh, start with some of the live callers. Please keep in mind that we don't have the ability anymore because AT&T um, Conference Center has removed their online tool. So we don't have the ability anymore to see how many people are in the queue or who's waiting. So please just uh, be patient as we work through your questions. Um, but let's start off with the first question. And Dave or Jay, do you guys want to take this one? Yeah, I can take this one. Um, this comes from uh, Nick uh, Pavia. Um, says, first off, thanks for all you guys do at 9E. I'm a CRJ 900FO in New York City. My question slash suggestion is regarding day trips. We have, uh, in my opinion, the best commuting rules and do a lot to help out commuting pilots. However, there are no trips that help pilots who whom live in base. Due to COVID, this would uh, be beneficial to not only the pilots who live in base, but the company as well. I know a lot of pilots who live in base would love this and utilize this. Why can't we even things out a bit for the pilots who live in base, especially in New York with a lack of flying and unproductive trips? Again, thanks for that question, Nick. Um, that would be easier to accomplish in some of the other bases where the flying is ticked up, like Atlanta, uh, especially Atlanta and Minneapolis they are and Detroit. Um, we're doing a lot of hub turns in those in those um, in those cities. Unfortunately, in New York, uh, it's a it's kind of a double edged sword right now. There's there's not a lot of flying in New York. I think we're doing around ten to fifteen departures out of, a day out of JFK, uh, and I believe it's between one and three departures a day out of LaGuardia. And then some I, going forward, we heard it might even be less than one a day out of LaGuardia going forward. Um, so it's it's very difficult to do that. And since we have a kind of a balance uh, issue out of um, out of New York right now, the company is having to force New York uh, trips into the other bases in order to get the New York pilots even flying. So right now, uh, getting day trips in New York would be very challenging, especially when they need to get the pilots flying through the other through the other bases. But I'll make sure to pass along um, your request to uh, our PBS chairman and see if. Uh, that's a possibility going forward, but just right now, due to the lack of flying in in New York, uh, that's um, that's going to be an issue. All right, looks like I've got the next uh, question. The next question comes from uh, Josh Matart. I apologize if I have slaughtered your name, um, but I usually do that. Uh, his question is about BLM pins. Is there anything we can do to keep? as a union to fight this, to keep politics out of the aircraft so that we don't have problems. Um, certainly I understand the concern because we work very, very hard to keep distractions out of the flight deck. And so I understand the, the kind of consternation that, um, that you know, the pin could potentially represent. I want to remind all the pilots, um, there are some very, very good messages that are coming from Black Lives Matter. Um, and then there's also some very controversial messages. And so I understand that concern. What I will say is that we don't own any type of contractual mechanism that would censor the company's communications or what they choose to support. I would also say that we wouldn't want some, some type of mechanism like that. Um, I was a, a bit critical of the company in censoring your ability to support causes that are important to you, whether they're related to this issue or beyond. And so I wouldn't want to create a mechanism that would do the very same thing that I'm being critical of um, by the company on. So thank you for the question, Josh. I appreciate that. Next question comes from Bob Benedetti. Was there any idea of what the Delta plan was for progression? You know, not officially, Bob, um, but kind of behind the scenes, you know, with some of my contacts, I was talking to them and I said, you know, 
Obviously, our goal is guaranteed and contractual, and the biggest thing with the guaranteed has got to be an objective-based system. And when we were talking about what an objective-based system meant in terms of, you know, let's say the interview, for example, I said, you know, I think that we could do something like the job knowledge test. We may even be able to do, um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. It's not the psyche evaluation. What's the next part of the, besides the job knowledge test? It was the... The cog. Yes, the cognitive, cognitive test. test. Thank you. We can even do the cognitive test. But things like um, the psyche valve and certainly things like the panel interview, that leads to a lot of subjectivity. And so we wouldn't really be in favor of that. We really want to create that objective system. So we don't know exactly what that plan looked like. But what I was being told was it met the objective-based criteria. And there may be some gates that you have to go through, um, like you normally would do for a guaranteed model. Things like, you know, your attendance and reliability, you have to have a clean record. And that doesn't mean that you don't call in sick, but it also means that you're not working on a level three advisory. You don't have any letters of warning, probably that you upgraded to captain. But those are very, very similar gates that we see at all other properties. And so I don't think that we would have had any type of consternation for that. Um, so thanks for the question, Bob. Let's take uh, one more email question and then we'll open up uh, for the phone lines. You guys want to take one? You guys want to take this one? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so this is from Andrew Konecki. How do you think the company is going to receive the new campaign goals of trying to get soft landings for Alpha pilots furloughed and bottom of seniority list offerings for Delta furloughs? Um, this, you know, more specifically when it comes to the Delta furloughs, this was a um, something that came up uh, when we first heard about Delta possibly furloughing pilots a few months back. Um, the officers discussed, you know trying to come up with a program to get Delta furloughees over to Endeavor should we start hiring. Um, and so we haven't approached that uh, with the company or Delta yet. Uh, we did approach the Delta MEC about trying to get some of their pilots jobs uh, here at Endeavor should our hiring uh, start when they were furloughing. Uh, and the Delta MEC chairman was supportive of that, um, but we haven't approached that topic with the company uh, just yet. Um, during a conference call with the FTI or with the, the flight instructors, um, couple days ago, um, the company had indicated they're not planning any new hires, uh, pro at least uh, through the end of this year and, and possibly uh, through at least uh, the first half to three quarters of next year. So we don't anticipate this coming up at the Endeavor level uh, anytime soon. All right, let's see how many callers we have in the queue. You have two questions remaining. Good evening. Yeah, David Leach, Atlanta First Officer. Um, I had a privilege of talking with a couple of higher-ups. I've been on reserve for the past three years and finally got an answer to why the reserve grid is red all the time. And what they said was if a pilot, a line pilot, submits uh, something into the open time or is able to drop it, that a pilot can pick it up at 150%. So they kept the reserve grid red for that specific reason. And I was wondering if we had the capability of maybe making an agreement with them that if a line pilot is trying to drop the trip where it's only at 100% instead of at 150% for that kind of pickup, so the reserve grid isn't just red, and we can move days and maneuver days both for line pilots Sure. And um, I'm sorry, I missed your first name. Was it David? Yes. 
Okay. Well, thank you for calling in, David. Really appreciate that. You know, this is a question that we have gotten um, probably pretty consistently for the last couple of years. And so here's the thing. Um, we actually got the reserve grid and Flicka system in place before we ever even had 150% open time. And this is a common misconception. Um, for about the first two months we had Flicka, the, the reserve grid was great. I mean, it was great. Everybody could drop, everybody could trade. It was a wonderful system. But then the company said, well, you know what? This, this creates a lot of inefficiencies because it's not just about the cost of the premium trip when a pilot drops it. If a pilot drops it, and that trip is now going to be um, offered at straight pay rather than premium pay, the chance of another pilot picking it up is far less, and that puts pressure on staffing. So it's really not just a cost issue. We've had a lot of pilots that have asked us, well, if we just get rid of 150% open time, then we can have control of the reserve grid. Not necessarily. And even if the company agreed to that, we also have to remember that 150% open time or more is applicable throughout the entire month. If we got a green reserve grid, what's going to happen on the 18th at 5 o'clock central is everybody is going to rush that is available, uh, rush to their computer, and they're going to drop and trade the trips they can. And in about the first five minutes, that reserve grid is going to become red. And for the rest of the month, you're going to experience the same things that you're experiencing now. So what I think really what we have to do is we have to figure out a solution to the problem that you know, you're really um, championing here. And that is, can we get more schedule flexibility? And one of the ways that you can achieve that is by going to a system of golden days off. You know, whether you cruise so many per month, per, per quarter, per year, I mean, the mechanics of the system um, would be, uh, you know, the negotiation. But the idea behind the golden days off is that would give you some level of super seniority. Now, I say they're, they're golden days off, but I didn't say they're guaranteed because if too many people above you use them, then you're still going to obviously not get the time off that you're seeking, which you know, I know defeats the purpose, but certainly enhances the likelihood. You know, once we've made those suggestions, though, you have to keep in mind that everybody in the seniority ranks that can get the schedule that they want without having to use those, such as weekends off, are now going to say, well, the, then the pilots junior to me are getting the weekends off that I normally can hold, and now I'm stuck working weekends being a more senior pilot. So you solve one problem and you create another, which you know has somewhat been problematic. Um, but we definitely hear you in terms of schedule flexibility. I would say you still can trade with worst day worse, but dropping is problematic and it has it doesn't have everything to do with 150% open time. Okay. Appreciate it. Hey, absolutely, no problem. You have one question remaining. Hi, good evening. Hey, good evening, and thank you for putting this together. My name is uh, Syed, and I'm a captain out of New York. And my question for you is, uh, as a New York-based captain commuting in from Texas, I find myself uh, sometimes flying out of Newark. Um, from my crash pad and whatnot, uh, that, I have to then commute to LaGuardia or JFK to then take another commute to Newark. Is there any possibility or has there been any discussion on um, potentially a solution for a direct commute to Newark as opposed to going from one airport to another? Uh, and if so, I mean, what would that look like? And if not, I would have some suggestions offline that I could present to you guys. Sure. So uh, I guess a direct, 
I guess I'm not understanding the question, and I apologize for that. Yeah, I think what he's getting at is a lot of the pairings, especially in New York right now, are beginning with a ground deadhead to Newark mm. to start their flying because we do a few flights. That, we actually do more flights out of the day now out of Newark than we do out of LaGuardia. What does um, that world come to? So, um, so I think he's just asking to see if he could just commute straight to Newark to start his trip instead of going to the original base airport, JFK or LaGuardia. I got you. So really what this comes down to is a front and alternate deadhead. Yeah. Okay. Um, do what, I mean, we've talked about front and alternate deadheads until we're blue in the face. Do one of you guys want to answer that? Yeah, I can, I can take that. You know, in, in your case, um, I don't know if front and alternate deadhead would help you out because we don't fly from Texas to Newark. So you're flying, I think you're commuting offline probably on United to Newark. Is that correct? Yeah, but this is more or less like um, when I position myself in New York uh, at my crash pad or whatnot. Like it's a, the commute is from uh, from the city into um, uh, LaGuardia or JFK, and then from there it takes a, a commute to Newark. So I guess my question was, is, is there any talk about taking hey, a commute straight to uh, Newark, whether that's from uh, New York or from Texas itself as well? Yeah, I mean, I've had a few uh, parents myself that when you start with a deadhead and I'm already in the base that the, the trip starts in, so you can call scheduling and say, hey, I'm already in Newark. Uh, can you drop the ground deadhead from JFK most time or LaGuardia? Most times they do that, but it is at their discretion. Okay. So just you can either email them through the CS Assist um, or that's what I've done. I usually just email them and state that, you know, you can show me, quote, own uh, for the uh, first uh, deadhead. Uh, and, and I haven't had them deny it uh, thus far. All righty. Thank you so much. Yep, no problem. Well, thanks for calling in. All right, let's see if we have any more callers in the queue. Otherwise, we'll go back to email. You have zero questions remaining. All right, so the phone lines are open. If you want to get into the queue, please do so. Right now, we'll go back to email questions, and the next email question comes from Eric Sissel. Eric writes, and I'm going to, there's several questions here, so I'm going to break them up a little bit. Um, it says, if I take a TVLOA full month, am I eligible for unemployment? Uh, the association really doesn't weigh in on unemployment benefits. Uh, that is between you and the state that you live in. Um, Obviously, Endeavor HR can certainly help you. Um, to my knowledge, I think very few, we've had very few reports, let me put it that way, of pilots being denied unemployment, um, though it has happened. So um, certainly you would be eligible to put an application in for unemployment. Then it says, if I take a TVLOA half month, am I eligible for unemployment? There isn't anything, there isn't something called TVLOA half month. There is something called half-time TOE-OP, which is uh, time off without pay. And that is just essentially a reduction in your guarantee down to 37 and a half hours. So I don't know if that would make you eligible for underemployment. Again, that would be between you and the state. So I really couldn't answer that. And then it says, if I am eligible for unemployment, do I apply for unemployment in the state that I live in Arizona or the state I'm based in MSP? Um, again, I would reach out to Endeavor HR for clarification on any of those questions, Eric, but we appreciate you uh, right then. All right, the next question is from Dem, or, uh, Ben Dubrow. Ben writes, if the 200 is retired, how will that affect our pilot staffing? Well, if the 200 is completely retired, um, it's gonna greatly affect our pilot staffing. 
if you figure that we've got 40 to 42 CRJ 200s and you figure about you know, 10, 11, 12 pilots uh, per airplane, you can start quickly doing the numbers that's, that that is hundreds of hundreds of pilots. Now, let's say, uh, well actually let me keep reading on these questions. Uh, will we be overstaffed? Well, yes, without replacement of aircraft, we will be overstaffed. Will that lead to furloughs? Well, I mean, it depends upon what the long-term future plan is for Endeavor. Um, you know, if we're going to replace it with a new fleet type, then no, it wouldn't necessarily lead to furloughs. Or if that new fleet type was coming uh, sometime in the near future, probably not. Uh, what would the be, re be a replacement uh, for the 200? Um, I don't know that we've even, we've even gotten that far. And if there is a replacement for the 200, I don't know that it's going to be a 50-seat product. I think what they're looking to do is, is a larger product um, for customer feedback purposes. And right now, Delta's, you know, scoped out on dual-class aircraft, so we don't know how that would work. Um, also from Ben, assuming that the 200 is retired, how will that affect our... Oh, I think that's just the same thing, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, nope, same question. Okay, thanks, Ben. I will add that DG, uh, or David Garrison, had added several times during CQ that they would like to be the launch customer for the MJet. So that, that is a possibility. I know he had stated that several, several times. All right, our next uh, question comes from uh, Stefan Seville. Stefan writes, how much per hour does it cost the company to reduce a credit window? We've seen a lot of reductions to certain positions, but not all. Even though the trip trips are horrendously inefficient, it seems like it would be e an easy solve to reduce a credit window and improve quality of life, but obviously there is a cost involved to the company for doing so, uh, monetary or not. Is there any valuation to it, or are they just holding on to the standard credit window in certain bases because they can't? Um, no, so they're reducing the credit window where they can um, because they need to because there's just not enough uh, flying to go around. Remember, they're also wanting to keep you know certain reserve levels, and you know if you reduce if you don't reduce the credit window, um, too much flying gets distributed and there's not enough reserves in position um, for when kind of times go bad or times go unexpected. So they are reducing the credit window in certain positions again where they can, where they may be overstaffed, but in other areas and I'm assuming you might be a 200 driver um, because a 200 driver in Atlanta, they've certainly been understaffed. That's probably why you're seeing that credit window right up to that 75 or maybe even, even higher where some other positions, the front end credit window has been between 60 and 75. Um, so hopefully that answers your question, uh, Stefan. I think he actually has another question. Do one of you guys want to take that one? Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and take it. Second, as Atlanta has grown, is now the most active base replacing New York. It has been uh, it has also taken over with the largest amount of commuters. What are the chances of moving some of the provisions for more five-day trips to be built into Atlanta to help make commuters' lives easier, especially with limited flight options? Um, yeah, that's a good question, Stefan. Um, we, uh, we, I think there is a uh, provision in the JCBA that limits uh, five-day trips unless the um, uh, PBS committee uh, consents to more. Uh, and uh, I don't think they ever oppose anymore. Uh, the problem right now is the uh, tw the five day trips contractually have a 25 hour rig associated with them, and they just the company doesn't like paying out the soft time credit on uh, trips that they build to less than 25 hours. So I think that's a, probably a reason why you're not seeing more 
five-day trips uh, than you typically have in the past because the flying is just not there to really build more five-day trips without there being a, a soft uh, credit associated with it. Right, let's check the uh, call callers to see if we have anyone in the queue. You have one question remaining. There we go. Good evening. How are you doing, uh, Captain uh, Hanley, uh, New York, 900? How are you doing, Captain? Just, uh, doing well, doing well. I just had a couple quick questions for you guys. Uh, I appreciate the job you guys are doing. I know you guys are working hard. Uh, I talked to Schedule the other day, and uh, they said they uh, Delta hit them uh, at the end of September with 800 uh, new flights for October, so they're kind of slammed with that. Uh, where did that come from? I uh, don't know, but if you guys can answer that, would be great. And also, um, in the restructure with Delta, um, where do we sit as far as the plans with Delta? Uh, are they going to go more domestic and smaller airplanes, more the different domestic routes, and how does Endeavor fit into that? Um, it seems to me that would be a, a viable option. It's, it's just taking us and putting this onto the bottom of the list and working out something with the uh, uh, Delta Union as far as us flying those aircraft uh, domestically. That's number one. Number two, um, I'm bidding uh, a long call reserve in New York, and I was just wondering if there's any way you guys can uh, find out if I bid long call reserve on the commuter and uh, they take out, they say, from the mock bid to the regular bid, uh, they which they did uh, this month. They took out three long call lines and also above me four people bid long call, not in the mock bid but in the final. So I looked at it down the line and that kind of knocked a lot of the guys back from uh, long call to P2. And if you're kind of counting on long call, that kind of knocked those guys out. Now they have to go get into crash pad. So I was wondering if there's anything that could be done if you don't get your number one choice in, in reserve. Can you go to a regular line? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, let me ask, let me answer the second part, Dave, and then, you, um, yeah. I'm sorry, Captain Hanley, and then Dave, you can answer the first part. Um, your best strategy as far as bidding is to contact the PBS committee. Um, there are things that you can do to set, we don't have what's called conditional bidding, um, but there are some things that you can do within reason that if you don't get this, then you want that. Um, but we're certainly not the subject matter experts on that, so I don't even want to begin to try to tell you on how to accomplish that. So please reach out to Chad Potter and the PBS committee, and they'll be able to work you through the best solution for you on, try to how, to, on how to try to maximize your bid to avoid that situation that you're looking at. And I'll answer the first part of your question, but I just drew a blank. Of what was <laughs> Sorry, what was, what was the first part of your question? No, the first part of the question was uh, uh, scheduling was hit with uh, the yes. okay. additional flights for October. It seemed like they swamped in a lot of the uh, and the low reserves and a lot of the bases. And uh, the question was, uh, I think Delta seems like they're going through restructuring. And how does Endeavor fit into that as far as uh, we flying more of the uh, routes that are domestic? And as far as scope is concerned, uh, would it be feasible if Delta would just say, hey, you know, we're going to put you guys on the bottom list so you can fly those routes, and then we'll work that out with uh, Delta Union and so forth. That could save a lot of money, save a lot of jobs, and so forth. Well, it's certainly feasible to us. Yeah. yeah um, no, thanks for uh, asking that question. Um, so we, we had our ops meeting, as I said earlier today, with the company, and I was able to talk to Jay Furnish, who heads up the uh, 
the company's uh, scheduling side, and uh, I asked them about that rumor about the 800 extra flights for October. Uh, it wasn't 800 extra flights. There was some incremental flights that Delta has asked us to, to pick up uh, that they were seeing a demand spike in. Uh, they were mostly leisure markets to um, to Florida. Uh, I think they picked up Cincy, Fort Myers, and also Raleigh to Tampa and Raleigh to Orlando. So it's not 800 extra departures, uh, but it does uh, creep us up to close to 800 departures a day. And I think that's maybe what the scheduler that you were talking to was referring to. Um, as far as where the industry is going when it comes to um, where they're put, where they're putting their capacity, it is uh, pretty clear right now that they're putting their capacity. They're taking it out of business markets and they're putting it into the leisure markets. United and American are adding a lot of capacity into Florida markets, and it looks like Delta is doing the same thing. So that's really where we're seeing the added flying going right now. Um, and as far as you know, moving us to the bottom of the Delta list, I think they, I think first there needs to be some sort of agreement on the Delta side as to what they're looking for long term, and then then they could then approach Delta Alpha, and then we could we could talk about something. But I think talking about it right now, we would just be guessing on what what would happen, and it, it could go in so many different directions. Right, right. I understand. Yeah, I just wondering if you heard anything. So I appreciate the information, I guess. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Actually, thanks for calling in. Right. Take care. You too. You have one question remaining. Good evening. Hey guys, uh, this is Jason Jones. How's it going? Good, Jason. How you doing? Good. Hey, has there been any uh, you know discussions about whether or not Delta wants to consolidate the? the uh, Delta Connection portfolio anymore. I know that you know, it doesn't appear that Republic's doing a whole lot. Of course, there's probably some gate and other stuff tied into that, but uh, the uh, might be time to, I don't know, I hate to knock anybody else out of the picture, but to me it looks like it'd be easier to just kind of shrink the, the DCI carriers down to two at this point. Yeah, Jason, uh, we, we have had, we've talked about it, it's come up. We've asked this question several times in management, and they've repeatedly said at this time there's no appetite for going down to two carriers. Um, their plan right now is to continue with three, and that's for the foreseeable future. Okay, yeah, thanks, appreciate it. No problem, have a great night. Yeah, you too. Thanks. And before we go to see if we have any more callers, um, we have about three email questions in the queue. So if you would like to email, I'm sorry, um, four now. Okay, thank you guys. We have four email questions in the queue. So if you have a question and you are listening to the, the stream, please email edvofficers at alpha.org. See if we have any more uh, online callers. You have zero questions remaining. All right, let's go to our next email question, which I think comes from our own Michael McCracken, who's sitting right here in front of us, and he's turning beet red as we look at him. But I think Jay's going to take this one. Yeah, what is the likelihood of ever bumping up our bidding credit for the training to a four-day or four-hour per day? Otherwise, training really messes up your bid for the month. Michael, for you, no way. For everyone else, sure. <laughs> yeah. Just for the reserve, and it doesn't cause any problems for your schedule. Yeah, so this has been a strategic plan for us for a while. Um, this comes up every every chance 
I think every call we've been on, the, the bid credit window for training. We do have some opportunities when it comes to training. They do want to take our RGS to online, which will open up some opportunities for us to actually have opportunities to negotiate over the credit window. Um, whether this is going to be the number one priority or not, I don't know. Um, there is some opportunity, though, where it may may present itself where we can increase that credit window or take one of the other major strategies that, that have been asked several times. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, and I, I also want to kind of follow up to um, Mike, just and, and for all the pilots that are listening here. So we get, that is what you call synthetic credit, right? So what happens when you bid a schedule? You have to be built to the front end of the credit window. And we lost a lot of synthetic credit uh, in training when the bankruptcy occurred. And in fact, I think we went from something like five hours a day to two. I, I might be a little off on that, but it, it's something near there. Um, so then what happens is you're only getting two hours of synthetic credit on that middle um, RGS day. And then that means the system has to find an additional three hours for you. And usually that means another day of work or two days of work if you also have SIMS in, in your um, month. So that really kind of messes up your month. And I'm sure, you know, Michael, that's what you were, you were driving at. But here's what happens when we do the test runs. And I'm not saying that this means that we shouldn't go that path, but I just want the pilot group to understand what they're purchasing when we try to go get this. So right now what happens is in that training month, you really get hosed because it can put more credit on your schedule. Um, however, in every other month that, that you don't have training, all those pilots that do are taking that additional credit from you. So you're actually working a little bit less the rest of the 11 months versus if we actually got the training credit right, it's going to have to disperse that credit to the other pilots that aren't in training for that month. And so you'll actually work a little bit more the other 11 months or 10 months if they're separated versus the months that you're in training. Again, it's not a reason that we shouldn't look at this and continue to do that. But when we've done um, mock PBS runs, and in fairness, we haven't done them in a while, but when we've done them, it really didn't move the days off appreciably. And that's why we kind of put it as, as somewhat of a low priority. But maybe it's time to revisit and look at it again. So thank you. Uh, we appreciate that. I haven't read this next question. Have one of you guys read it yet? No. Okay. Has, uh, this next question comes from Patrick Malone. And Patrick writes, has there been any discussion of blank lines where an individual would have a blank monthly schedule? I, I think maybe Patrick has a bug in our office. And zero hours of credit initially but retain the ability to pick up trips out of open time or off the trade board versus the current TVLOA model where individuals are unable to conduct any monthly fly. Patrick, that is a wonderful question and a great question. And again, somehow I think you might have a bug in our office because that is something that we have discussed internally. It is also something we've discussed with the company in a very, very preliminary fashion. So one of the things that we were concerned with though with an empty line or a zero hour line, and just to make sure that you know all of our listeners understand what is being talked about, you would bid for a schedule with, let's say, 31 days off and a 31-day bid period and zero hours of credit. No, no credit, no trips, but now you can add flying. And in your example, uh, Patrick, you were either adding flying off the trade board or you were adding um, flying out of open time. The problem with adding flying out of open time is now you've got a blank schedule, and if you're picking up trips at 150 or 200%, you could then kind of create yourself a super seniority schedule where you're working maybe the same amount of time that somebody else is, but you're making a lot of money. Now, you, you put some skin in the game to do that. There's no doubt about it. You, you may not have those trips available to you depending upon how much flying that we're doing.
But the MEC has kind of been sensitive to that kind of seniority inversions. And so we thought a better idea was, could we limit it to trade board ads only? And Flicka does have the ability to do that because if we limit it to trade board ads only, then you're just picking it up at straight time, unless that trip happened to be picked up at premium that was offered on the trade board, and in which case you'd be eligible for premium. There's no reason not to be, but just do a straight trade board ad. Um, helps the pilot trying to get rid of the trip or the segments of the trips, and it certainly helps you. That is something that we have, like I said, preliminary dis lim very preliminary discussed with the company as a means of a cost savings measure that may continue to save money and mitigate furloughs. The complication comes in, I guess, is what is happening at the Delta MEC level. Um, the company has been very adamant about not moving towards um, paid leaves, like special incentive lines. We've talked about that before, kind of ad nauseum. Um, but now what is happening is we're hearing rumblings at the Delta MEC level that they have uh, an agreement uh, in principle that may include some paid leaves. Uh, 25 hours to 35 hours, depending upon whether it's a single month or multi-month, and an ability to pick up. I think the pickups wouldn't go on top of that number. I think you would only pick up to that number before you went above it. But certainly that adds kind of a wrinkle because is the zero-hour line concept now the right concept for Endeavor when we've got paid leaves at Delta? So there's more exploration and more discussions that need to happen on that topic, and we're certainly going to look at that with the company. So that was a great question. All right. Uh, what do you guys want to take this one? Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, Andrew Konecki asks, uh, did it really cost the company that much for a positive space home? It's been really tough to commute home lately. Any indications that the company will resume something, resume something like that? So, Andrew, that's a good question. You know, when uh, when we got the positive space uh, commute going home, it was because Delta uh, pilots and flight attendants had received it. Uh, and so we approached a company about uh, reciprocating that for our pilots, and they had agreed. Uh, when Delta rescinded that policy for their own pilots and flight attendants, we had to also rescind that policy uh, for our pilots and flight attendants. Uh, and um, they are not indicating, uh, they haven't given us any indication that they plan to reinstate that anytime soon. Uh, in fact, they're saying they, they think uh, because of bookings dropping uh, here um, in October uh, and their revision to the seat cap policy going forward, uh, that they think um, that the ability to commute home is going to organically uh, fix itself. Uh, so, but thanks for sending the question in uh, and we'll, we'll continue to advocate for it. But until they reinstate that policy at Delta, um, there's probably very little chance that we'll be able to get it here. I can't imagine Endeavor Files getting the Delta not. <laughs> Next question comes from Zach Brendel. Hello, I just wanted to know what the attrition numbers have been like during COVID. And since the attrition numbers have, since the attrition numbers has stopped being sent out, are the Kokarko carriers taking any significant number of pilots? That, that would be cargo carriers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we, just, we created a new segment of the industry. Yeah, the, awesome. the cargo. <laughs> thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the numbers recently have been significantly low, single digits. We haven't seen much attrition numbers at all. In fact, it's almost at a standstill. So... Uh, that is why the company hasn't been setting them out. Thanks, Zach. Now, let's see if we have any callers in the queue here. You have one question remaining. Hey, good evening. Good evening. Can you hear us? Hello? Oh, there you are. That pesky mute button. Hey. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about it. But yeah, um, I'm foreign. Uh, I'm a non-expert in Cincinnati. 
talking about where our bargaining priorities are? Yeah, yeah, I would say that. I would describe them as 100% and 100%. I think that we can actually have uh, more than one strategic priority and we can, we can capture those strategic priorities. So we are focused on progression for all, but it is not to the detriment or exclusion of any of our other strategic objectives. So as I kind of said early on the call, you know, when we, when we really got serious about progression for all, and career progression in general. That was about two and a half years ago during LOA 91. And we've done almost 30 LOAs since then. And so we're always looking for bargaining opportunities. Um, I will say the hard part right now, and you know, and I do have to give a little bit of consideration and respect to the company on this. You know, the company's been very hesitant to do anything permanently, uh, make any permanent changes to the contract inside the COVID environment because they just don't know what tomorrow is going to look like and they don't want to sign up for something that they may not be able to control because of a shift that's beyond their control at the macro level tomorrow. So that's kind of why I think you've seen some of these quality of life improvements slow down and some of the bargaining opportunities that we've been become so accustomed to over 119 LOAs uh, not materialize. And again, that's where I think we need to understand, you know, there will be greener pastures coming and at least right now, you've got the best contract in the fee-for-departure industry and it is completely intact. So um, just to kind of summarize yet again, I would say it's 100% PFA, but I would say it's also 100% other strategic objectives. I appreciate that. Uh, appreciate you guys putting in the hard work behind the line. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much. Let's see if we have any callers here. You have zero questions remaining. All right, let's go back to the email questions, and this is uh, Dave. Um, all right, this is from Captain uh, Matt Helmstead. Uh, should we be expecting another realignment notice, and has the company approached the union in reference to, in reference to uh, furlough mitigation? Yeah, so uh, we, we have been notified to possibly expect another uh, realignment notice um, uh, in the end of October, early November timeframe. Um, there hasn't been any indication yet as to what it'll, it can, what it'll contain, just because they're waiting on some um, guidance from Delta Network Planning. But the, the early on um, indication is that it's possibly a further reduction in New York City with additions uh, in, on other bases um, to compensate for that. Um, no downgrades or no fewer captain positions are, are, are expected, uh, no furloughs associated with it. When it comes to have they approached us about furlough mitigation, um, I can let Nick handle that one. Yeah, so you know, with furlough mitigation, um, as I said earlier in kind of the briefing, the company did ask us for 27% pay concessions. Um, and what they were offering in, in return for those 27% pay, pay concessions, excuse me, um, <clears throat> what they were offering I for those- I understand that, that's how I said cargo. <laughs> I don't think you said cargo, no, that was the thing. That was the issue. What they were offering in those 27% pay cuts um, was no furlough protections through July 31st, which really wasn't meaningful considering we knew that they were in Washington advocating for CARES Act money. And if they achieved it, we'd have no furlough protections through October 1st, which is exactly what ended up happening. 
Right now, the only thing that uh, both the association and the company seems to be interested in is voluntary furlough mitigations. Um, if it, we went to the involuntary levels that the company wanted to go to, um, we, we would need career progression to make that make that work. And the company said that career progression just you know optically doesn't work for them right now because, in their words, it seems like we're trying to leverage the pandemic. And from our viewpoints. We think that Delta is trying to leverage the pandemic, so let's leverage each other and make a deal that you know makes sense and solves problems and unlocks mutual benefits. Um, but right now they're just they're not there, and so we're going to continue to focus on voluntary measures that save money and and help mitigate furloughs. So we'll go to another email question, and this comes from First Officer John Marking, and it says, "Just to be clear, our hats off and lanyards." Still, okay, yeah, our hats off and lanyards still on. So great question, John, appreciate that. Um, you know, we removed the hats off, lanyards on portion of the campaign because it was very, very focused on Endeavor. And if we want to capture other pilots at carriers that are now defunct or other pilots that are um, going to be or have been furloughed, we certainly need to come up with a new sub-slogan, which is why we went to the Alpa, uh, Advancing Alpha Pilots. However, you have to remember that our lanyard is still our brand, okay? That is still our symbol. It is our symbol of unity. It is our symbol of our strategic objectives. And so, yes, we are still very, very focused on wearing the lanyard. As far as the hat is concerned, it has always been your choice whether to wear the hat or not. Our recommendation to remove it was for the following reasons. The hat represents everything that is important to Delta. In other words, brand recognition, how the customer views you, professionalism, and most importantly, dollars. And let's not, let's not forget that. But the hat also represents everything that you are not, and I am not, and we are not. We are not Delta, and we're not Delta in the ways that are most meaningful and impactful to us and to our friends and to our families, which is you know, in pay rates, in work rules, in job security, in retirement. We don't have those things. So the recommendation to not wear the hat was kind of a representation of the dichotomous position uh, that we are in. Now, I will say this. I am personally not going to wear my hat, and I'm going to recommend um, that you don't wear your hat, but it's not going to be a focal point of the campaign um, any longer. And if you, um, if you want to wear your hat, uh, but that also gets you to put your orange lanyard on, I'm all for that, because the orange lanyard is really what we want to focus on, because that is our brand. So thank you for that question, John. All right, next question. Has there been any interest thought for some kind of incentive line similar to other carriers? I guess I'm not really... Yeah, he's, uh, the reference here is that uh, uh, carriers like Envoy has, have these special incentive lines. Oh, the SIL. Yeah, yeah, the SILs. So um, I think we discussed it earlier that the company right now is not interested in the unpaid or the paid leave concept, uh, especially since their non-union employees have taken some pay, uh, pay cuts uh, and work hour reductions. Uh, but as Nick stated earlier, the Delta MEC negotiated some zero-hour lines that have a minimum pay guarantee associated with it. Uh, so that's, I think, going to hopefully restart that conversation at our property to try and get that moving forward. Yeah, so the, thank you, Dave. Next question comes from Andrew. Will the association start shipping my yearly pizza slices and Diet Coke straight to my home during the re recurrent? No, Andrew. Um, unfortunately, with the current going to online and going to LMS, the seeing you face-to-face -face and having that ability 
we've lost that option. But the officers have spoken about how do we get back. And as this pandemic resides, you will see the officers in bases getting out and having that opportunity to see you with food and coffee and taking that opportunity every chance we get. We're sorry we can't get you that pizza, but we are looking forward to being able to see you face-to-face -face soon every chance we get. And Andrew, uh, because we're doing things online, we could send you a pizza slice emoji, if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to our uh, next question, again, from Andrew Kanecki. It looks like we have two more, so uh, if you would like to email us, please email edvofficers at alpa.org. Um, after this question, we'll check to see if there's anybody online. If there's very little movement in the near future, will the company offer chances to move between bases without offering upgrades? So if there are straight vacancies for balances of staffing purposes, um, yes, there will be. Or if there's realignments that need to be, yes, there will be those opportunities to move um, bases. Um, but I'm trying to remember, Dave, back to the 2014 timeframe. I think we did one realignment, one realignment only. Um, and that was the last time we saw that. And I think that was the only vacancy or award that was put out that entire year. So it's not necessarily common is, where I guess, where I'm going. Yeah, and I, I think what I would also um, say is that there's not really a contractual uh, provision that allows the company to put out a vacancy without um, offering upgrades. Yeah. If the pilot that wants that captain spot is currently a, an FO but is junior, they're, uh, they're um, entitled to that position. Same thing in realignments. Now, um, we have righted the seniority list a little bit when it comes to the uh, seniority, when it comes to uh, the captain positions. So we're starting in these realignments to see fewer and fewer upgrades and uh, downgrades as a result of that. And that was mostly righted by the um, by what, what I would call the street captains that we had. Um, and that was, uh, I think, those were mostly in the the first realignment that came out a couple months ago. Uh, I think in this last realignment, we had maybe six or seven upgrades and the equivalent amount of downgrades. And several of those were New York pilots who chose to stay in New York as FOs rather than to commute to other captain positions uh, throughout the system. But again, like I said, there's no provision that allows the company just to say, we want to open up these spots, but only to people who are already captains and then um, and kind of uh, ignore seniority. With the one caveat, Dave, being if New York picks up flying, they could balance bases again. So you could see just a transfer, but it wouldn't have to do with upgrade or downgrade. Just more of a, a general balancing of the bases we could see in the next year. It, but it would, it would go by seniority. Yeah, so, still, still yeah. seniority. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's check to see if we have any callers in the queue. You have one question remaining. Good evening. How you doing? Hey, good evening, guys. Just a quick question. Do you guys know how many guys are going to be back on the line from the training department with the shrinking going on? Forty. That's that's the guys? that's the general number. Um, it could vary. 40, well, 40 positions, right? 40 positions. Positions. Yeah. Yeah. There's some part time. There's some part time, and the part times won't be back on the line. So there's they're shrinking the department by a total of 40. Um, right. And, and with that, the way they worded the phrase is there's a total of 85 total equivalents. So there there is some part time. They were justifying the part time two equals one. So two part guy time guys would equal one full time guy. And that department's going to shrink to a total of 45 total instructors or equivalents. Well, is, it mostly all cap 
there's a lot of captain positions coming back online. Uh, that is not necessarily no. true. There's a few that uh, through these last realignments that could come back into the FO slots. All right, cool. Thanks, guys. No problem. Have a wonderful night. Absolutely. You have zero questions remaining. All right, zero questions remaining in the queue. Uh, we have three email questions. Again, if you want to get into the queue, if you're a caller, please press one and then zero. Let's return back to email questions. It says, hello, my name is Sergio. I'm a New York City 900 first officer. Has there been any progress on front end deadhead? Well, I should say front end alternate deadheads. There's a lot of New York City trips starting with a deadhead out to a different base as of late. And I feel like this would be a no cost item for the company. So. The scheduling committee tries to, because we don't have front-end alternate deadhead like uh, Delta does, they try to move those tr um, deadheads to the maximum extent they can to the back end of the trip, where you can start with an alternate deadhead, uh, or end it, excuse me, with an alternate deadhead, but that's usually, obviously, when you're going between JFK and LaGuardia. If you're going to someplace completely different, then, yeah, you, you are unable to move that. So front-end alternate deadhead, I have to say, is something that we have championed with the company Gosh, Dave, I mean, eight, years. ten times. I mean, this yeah. is something that we continuously hammer them on. And, you know, their concern is, um, and I have to kind of chuckle when I say this, they said, well, we've reached out to, you know, Delta Flight Ops, and, you know, they really don't like that program, and they've recommended that we don't entertain that idea. And I was like, well, that's, you know, that, that really doesn't help us solve the problem. We have to understand what your concern is. And, and their concern is broken crews, split crews. And, and so why... You might say it's a no-cost item because on a prima facie level, it seems like it's a no-cost item. It's not necessarily zero cost. That being said, it, it, it's very low, and we consider it a non-economic quid. Uh, but there is still some cost to it, and let me explain how. Um, so let's say you've got um, a CRJ 900 crew. Okay, Normally, you'd be coming out of LaGuardia, let's say going to Boston for an example. And you've got that crew intact um, because they all have to report and they all have to take that, that deadhead. Now you change it and you've got somebody that's going to be coming out of Cincinnati taking an alternate deadhead because they can get to Boston out of Cincinnati. And that Cincinnati flight, for some reason, either cancels because of maintenance or gets delayed because of crew rest. Now you've got, let's just say, a first officer and two flight attendants that are now getting um, shoveled from LaGuardia down to Boston and you've got no captain. And so you've got a split crew, okay? And so what happens in that is that kind of feeds right into staffing and staffing feeds into headcounts and headcounts uh, feed into cost. Again, um, I think the amount of trips that we see overall system-wide with front-end alternate deadheads and the rules that surround front-end alternate deadhead, including having to come, be coming from a city to a city that has that level of service and within that time frame you're talking about a handful of trips per month. And that's why we think that the cost impact is extremely minimal. Uh, so we've advocated for, go, advocated for it going on two years. Uh, I actually just talked about that very same topic with uh, Joe Miller earlier today before the ops meeting. And we're gonna continue to advocate it because I know the pilots would uh, certainly like to see it. So thanks for that question. Next uh, question comes from Captain Katie Gello. And again, apologize if I have slaughtered your name. It says, hey guys, in regard to the progression for all campaign, I am wondering what our current goals are. 
Has there been any conversation about a preferential interview for any of our colleagues that have recently lost their jobs, specifically TSA, Compass, and ExpressJet? You mentioned there's been talks with DALPA to also help out their furloughed pilot group. So the, the campaign goals in Progression for All um, are still the same goals because we're still trying to save, solve the same problem. And that is guaranteed. Actually, can you guys go back to that question real quick? Sorry, because um, I know there's going to be a second part of it and then we'll click over in a second. Um, I know that um, we're still trying to solve the same problem, so we still have the same goals, which is guaranteed in contractual career progression. Um, so that is still the same goal, that's not changing. Now, as far as the conversation about the preferential interviews for um, recently defunct carriers and then specifically for uh, the Delta Alpha pilots, let me touch on that, now we can click to the next uh, email, guys. Um, the MEC passed two resolutions of support. One resolution was in support for um, Alpha pilots in general, and then one was very, very specific to Delta Alpha pilots. And we are very interested in creating programs um, in the event that Delta furloughs, um, and in the event, well, I shouldn't say in the event, and since Compass, TSA, and ExpressJet have, have shut their doors, of getting those pilots within our ranks. The time frame on that is very, very unknown. Um, if we do start to park the 200s at the end of 2021, even if that wind down is slow, as we said before, we're probably going to be a little fat on pilots, and so we're going to have to let, hopefully let natural organic attrition uh, take hold as that wind down comes, comes in place. So who knows when we're going to be hiring, but you know, the point is that we are ready to answer the call. Um, to try to get those pilots into our ranks because we do want to protect Alpha pilots and we do want to protect Alpha jobs to the maximum extent that we can. And fortunately, with 119 LOAs, we've got great bargaining relationships with management and I feel very good and confident uh, about being able to make that happen when the time comes. So thank you for the question. Uh, next question comes from Justin Ferner. Are electronic releases still expected early 2021? We just got an update on this today. They are planning to do the testing late November, early December, and expect to have the electronic releases sometime first quarter next year. They do have to do some updates with Sabre. So once that is done, they were kind of reluctant to give us the exact time when they're gonna do the update from behind the scenes based upon current schedule. But once that gets complete, they'll be able to do the testing phase and that will help us out to understand when the exact timeline in the first quarter that it will roll out. All right, thanks, Jade. I'll take the next one. This is from Captain uh, William Brynjolfsson. Um, it says, how will the FTIs return into the line affect staffing? Um, so uh, contractually, when um, the pilots, uh, pilots in the training department that are on the seniority list are, are, are given phantom status, and when we process vacancies and realignments in accordance with Section 24, um, they don't count towards the staffing numbers, uh, but they get positions that they can otherwise hold. Um, so we have a disproportionate amount of instructors, obviously, who live in Minneapolis, so they try and phantom to Minneapolis 900 captain positions. Uh, we won't know the impact on the staffing until they uh, um, notify these instructors, which I believe is happening tomorrow and the following day. Uh, and then we'll get a list of which instructors are being sent back to the line and in which positions they, they hold. And so it will have a, a, an impact on the staffing, most likely disproportionately in the Minneapolis 900 captain position. Uh, the good news was they just added 10 positions in both uh, captain and FO in Minneapolis in this last realignment. 
that will put it out of balance uh, should a bunch of the FTIs be Minneapolis-based. Um, but the kind of the early indications we're getting from them isn't that they're going to re realign pilots out of Minneapolis on the next one, is they'll realign in some Minneapolis <coughs> 900 FOs to balance the staffing there. All right, thank you, Dave. After the training department reductions, does the new size of the training department represent enough instructors to keep our current pilot group current? Yes, uh, Ryan, we've, we've had several discussions with uh, Brad Bell and his team, and Brad actually stated the current number is in the high 30s, and he had asked for 45 current instructors, which with those current 45 instructors will give him a buffer margin to maintain under current staffing conditions. Thank you. All right, let's just let's check to see if there's callers in the queue. You have one question remaining. Good evening. How you doing? Can you hear us? If you're talking, you might be on mute. No, no, it's Captain Hanley. And how you doing? Hey, Captain Hanley. Good to hear from you again. Okay, I've got a quick question for you. Um, how do you guys feel, and uh, I don't know if you ever talked with uh, Alpha, uh, Alpha Union, um, about as far as getting uh, Olaf Line in with the Alpha carriers? Like, uh, I know uh, we, we hear about Union and everything else, and but, you know, SkyWest has a considerable amount of flying to Delta, and I was just wondering how you guys feel about it and how uh, Delta Union feels about it, maybe trying to make a stance on trying to get all the flying into end with uh, Alpha carriers? Well, certainly that would be something that we as an association would prefer, to just be able to cover 100% of the flying and not only protect but grow out the jobs. Um, obviously that there are some you know challenges to doing that. And probably, I would have to say, Dave, unless you disagree, the best way to do that would just be to buy back your scope and bring all that flying to the mainline property, which, again, is the ultimate long-term goal. Um, has been for quite some time. We really haven't obviously seen any results from that. Um, we're hoping that we're going to get some different results as we move forward over the next several years. Um, but that would be the best way to do it, would just be to bring the flying in-house at Alpa Properties. Right. I mean, uh, like, I would think that uh, Delta is uh, a little bit more of a strong uh, voice on it, especially if they're looking at following their pilots in any near future. I would, I would hate to see that, you know, the, the, the uh, alpha pilots getting furloughed when the, uh, the work is being subcontracted to a non-alpha carrier. Yeah, I think that's going to be, I think what you're going to see going forward because of what happened during this pandemic is that the job security provi provisions at not just Delta, but United as well are going to become more of a strategic priority for their MECs going forward. You know, um, Delta uh, obviously owns us, um, but at United, um, they don't own any of the uh, United Express carriers. Uh, they own percentages of some of them. Uh, in fact, they own 49% of ExpressJet, which they decided to shut down. They also own 49% of um, Commute Air, which is the carrier they decided to keep. But I, I think um, the MECs at both Delta and United are starting to see that um, that that flow down provisions um, are probably going to be important going forward for them and it's probably going to be something they're going to try and negotiate with their managements going forward and that's just job security protections for them uh, but until they approach that subject with their own managements 
there's not much we can do for it, but they're going to have to use capital to do that because flow down uh, provisions are very expensive and they always come up uh, during times when the companies are struggling and, and wanting to furlough. So um, it, it's going to be real difficult for them, but I, uh, I think it's going to be more important for them going forward. Great. Hey, thanks a lot. Hey, take care. Bye. You have zero questions remaining. All right, let's go back to email questions. Looks like we have uh, from First Officer Brian Kelly. He writes, in regards to the increased schedule for the upcoming months and fleet updates, have you heard if there are any plans to bring back more 700 and 900 aircraft that are still in long-term storage located in Salina or Clarksburg or any other locations? I, you know, I don't know what the final numbers are as far as our dual-class aircraft are out, but I know that the numbers are high. The problem is the efficiency. I think we were just talking to Jay Furnish today. Um, I think, what is this, Jay's title? Director of Network Planning? Or or Vice President. Vice President of Network yeah. Planning? Okay. I'm um, sorry, Jay. looks like I demoted you and didn't mean to. Um, so anyways, we were just talking to him about that today, and I think pre-COVID he was saying we were up at 10.8, 10.9 hours per day, and right now we're at like 7.7 .7 hours per day. Um, so there's definitely a lot of efficiency that they can flex into our current fleet, which I think they probably would like to try to do before they would take out more hauls. Um, but regardless, we're going to meet the demands and the schedule that Delta gives us. I mean, if they want us to go back to 100 or 110 or 120 percent pre-COVID levels, we'll, we'll gladly take on that flying. We'll bring those hauls out and we'll start flying. So appreciate it, Brian. And was that the last email question we have? Oh, wow. Okay. So let me check the phone lines. You have zero questions remaining. Okay, so we don't have anybody in the online queue, or excuse me, email queue, nor do we have anybody in the caller queue. So, um, officers, is there anything that we haven't covered tonight that we wanted to talk to the group about? No, I don't think so. I, I just want to say, you know, continue to send in uh, your contract questions, the EDB contract questions uh, um, when you have them. Uh, email the officers at EDV officers when you have something come up, but more importantly, reach out to your reps, talk to them, email them. A lot of them like to be um, uh, to communicate via text as well. Feel free to do that, uh, but give them your feedback so they can provide that to us. We do have our regularly scheduled uh, MEC meeting next um, next week, uh, and so when you communicate with them, uh, they communicate with us, and that's how the um, direction of the MEC is set. Excellent. And I know that we have uh, Jane Schraft on the line. Jane, uh, any kind of closing or final thoughts? I think you all did a great job of covering the issues raised. All right. Thanks, Jane. Appreciate that. All right. Let's uh, check the phone lines one more time. You have zero questions remaining. Okay. Uh, we do have one more email question. So let's go to that real quick. We're not ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have any callers in the queue. That's the we problem. We got about five it seconds. Just came out. We're experiencing technical difficulties. So, um, all right, we'll just read it straight from here. Uh, looks like this question comes from Alex. I'm not even going to try your last name. Mark Hort. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, this is Atlanta 200 First Officer Alex Marquardt. Uh, thanks for hosting this. You said earlier that our 200 flying represents 1,000 jobs, which is over half of our current seniority list. I'm in recurrent right now, and Dave Wilson was asked uh, was asked today about what the plan for replacing the 200 is and if it would possibly come from getting planes from other carriers. My understanding of his response 
was there isn't there isn't one would offset the pilots that would not be needed, which does not sound feasible. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. He seemed to think that offering leaves would offset the pilots that would not be needed, which doesn't sound feasible. So let me, let me first say this about the thousand jobs, okay? 40% of our fleet is not under any guarantee. Yeah, thank you for, you know, apparently I'm 42 years old and I can't even see the screen in front of me anymore. Um, the thousand jobs represents all the aircraft that are not under any contractual guarantee right now. And we do have some dual class aircraft that are not under any contractual guarantee. So when I, when I say a thousand jobs, I'm talking about the lack of fleet guarantee. I'm not just talking about um, the 200 aircraft. The 200 aircraft is part of that, but doesn't represent that whole thing. So um, now, now that I can finally see this, my understanding of his response was there isn't one because Delta is scoped out of the dual class and no plan to get planes from anyone else. He seemed to think that offering leaves would offset the pilots that would be needed, which doesn't sound feasible. Okay, now I understand that question, which is, again, what you're really driving towards, Alex, is what is the replacement plan for the 200? And, and if there is no replacement plan, where does that leave us? And it's a really great question because we are scoped out, and I don't know that any more aircraft are going to be transferred here because the consolidation, at least as we know it, plan in the Delta network is complete. Um, also writes, I know this is all recent, and as you stated, may not happen, but the 200 will be going away eventually, so is there anything going on in the MEC to try to secure a long-term plan for the company not shrinking by half in the next few years without any firm order for the MRJ or plans to get the rest of the Delta-owned CRJs from SkyWest? Um, keep in mind that we're not going to shrink by half, okay, because that part of the lack of fleet guarantee is the dual-class aircraft, and I don't think there's any plans for those going away. But is there a plan to get, um, secure those 200, um, the jobs of the 200, excuse me, the CRJ 200 pilots? Um, we would obviously love to secure them. This is one of the things that we're trying to, to work on with the guaranteed and contractual career progression model. Even if there's a near-term issue where you lose your job here, if we've secured a model, we want to protect your rights to go to Delta in the future, regardless of where you're at. So that's part of the reason why we have been you know, pushing the career progression plan so hard. We're also going to continue on that front to see what other options we have to make sure that uh, maybe we can find some replacement um, aircraft for those, or maybe we can find uh, a way to get additional aircraft, because obviously we don't want to see any shrinking either. So definitely appreciate that question. Let me go back to make sure the callers in the queue are still at zero. You have zero questions remaining. Okay, so we don't have any callers um, in the queue, so we're going to end the Q&A mode online, so stand by. Place. This question and answer session is now ended. To begin another question and answer session, press star 7-2. All right, uh, Bob just writes, uh, great meeting. Thank you for everything that you do for us. Uh, we appreciate that, Bob Benedetti, and you're, you're very welcome. And any more questions on email? Okay. One just came in. Yes. Yeah, so. Did one just come yeah, in? Yeah, so I'll read it real quick. Oh, it's, thank you. Uh, the current scope does not seem to align, or sorry, it comes from Justin Fenner. The current scope does not seem to align with future plans. How does changing a scope clause happen? Is this something that could happen? That is uh, That scope clause that we operate under is Delta's scope clause. Uh, that would have to be changed in their in their uh, pilot working agreement. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as we understand it, that, that's not something they plan on doing. Uh, but things can change. Um, their priorities can change. Uh, they could do something similar to what United did, possibly with the CRJ 550. But... Um, but the uh, revenue associated with the 550 is challenging at best in this environment right now. So we just don't know. One thing I will say when it comes to what the, the parking of the 200, 
when we talked to you know, Jay Furnish today about about uh, the future realignment, he said they were waiting on a, a plan from network uh, uh, network planning um, for something that's two months from now. And the joke was, well, we don't know our flying two months from now, but we know that the CRJ 200 is being parked in three years. So, um, so that's just something <laughs> to keep in mind, you know, that they're having a hard time giving us a schedule for two to three months from now. Um, that's why I don't think a lot of people are confident in the parking of the CRJ 200. But I think what somebody else wrote in was that, you know, it is going away eventually. It is an older aircraft and it probably will go away. There are some options out there to replace it with. Um, should Delta decide to go in that direction. Um, but um, until I think they start to see some return in demand, we really won't know. Great point, Dave. All right. Looks like we, uh, we've ended the question and answer mode for the callers. There are no more emails. So once again, I'd like to thank sincerely everybody that joined the call tonight. Uh, again, this is our fourth all-pilot conference call this year alone. I would expect kind of the same schedule moving to next year. Uh, hopefully our test of our video and audio equipment went very well. I'm getting the thumbs up from the comms guys. So next time you actually get to see all of our ugly mugs live uh, and in person, so to speak, uh, streaming on the web. So I'm sure our web participation is probably going to go through the roof at that point. No, they um, don't want to see me. They don't want to see you? Yeah. <laughs> I can't blame them. Uh, but anyways, guys, thank you for all that you've done. I mean, COVID has really challenged us and challenged this airline. I think we've all stepped up in a great way. Um, I think we have kind of gotten to the new temporary norm and things are going about as well as we could at hope at this carrier, both in terms of your benefits and in terms of our flying opportunities and our outlook. I know there's still a lot of uncertainty and that can provide a certain amount of trepidation for a lot of you, but uh, I think you're handling it with grace and professionalism and I want to say thank you so much for that. Um, please uh, keep listening to the podcasts uh, on air with the chair. We should have one being released probably in the next couple of weeks that will also talk about a lot of the same topics that we covered uh, tonight. And I uh, hope that you uh, fly safe and be safe out there. And thank you for joining the call. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to our All Pilot Conference call. Remember, if you have questions for the next call or our next podcast episode, please email them to edvcoms at alpa.org. Thank you. We'll see you next time.